Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're back to new shows this week with a heck of a program. First, I'll talk with Joel Meyerowitz. Damiani has published a new edition of Meyerowitz's 1983 book, Wild Flowers. The new expanded edition includes pictures from both the 1983 book and new pictures that expand on the ways in which Meyerowitz found flowers recurring throughout much of his work. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for around $55. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Meyerowitz came to prominence as a street photographer in the 1960s, was a leader in adopting color photography, and has published 26 books, including the classics Cape Light, St. Louis in the Arch, and Aftermath. On the second segment, Elizabeth James Perry joins me to discuss a new project she's created for the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Please remember to give us a rating and a five-star review wherever you listen to the program. Joel Meyerowitz, after the break. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment this summer. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century, The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works, Photo Flux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color, and In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus Y.L. Shockey, highlighting a film from his ambitious trilogy, Cabaret Crusades, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. In this exhibition, as with much of his work, Shockey explores the ambiguities between history and myth in a multimedia presentation in order to challenge the authority of history. At The Modern through July 25th. Information at themodern.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take 6 allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take 6 will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Joel Meyerowitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Wow, thank you for inviting me, Tyler. Happy to be here. The first version of Wildflowers, the book Wildflowers, was published in 1983. Do you remember how or why you came to notice that flowers, actual flowers, printed flowers, flowers in paintings, and so on, kept popping up in your work? I remember exquisitely how it happened because it was one of those lightning bolts of recognition that we hope happens to us at at necessary moments. I had just shot an advertising job, 
and I was on a light box in my studio, dumping a roll at a time, and there were probably over a hundred rolls of film. It was a week-long shoot. And, you know, as I'm editing, I'm laying out the pictures that I think are serving the client's needs and the ad needs best. And then I, you know, every once in a while, a picture comes up that is, I make for myself. I turn to the side and I see something interesting or I'm in a new place. Anyway, I noticed there were a few photographs in which flowers, I don't mean the pretty kind, but there was a floral motif or something. And I just kind of tossed them to the top of the, of the light box thinking, well, I'll assemble these later on with other things that I find that don't fit with the client. And by the end of the day, I had a nice little stack of pictures and going through them, there were at least a dozen that had some flower thing in it. And I thought, you know, I'm sure I've seen things like this in the rest of my work that I probably pulled out as interesting, but with no need to assemble them into a, a whole. And so I thought, I better take a look. And so when I was finished with the edit, I went back into my files of slides and I started culling. And by the end of a couple of days of work, and it got more and more interesting, I had several hundred photographs in which the flower, a cliche that you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, suddenly had a freshness and a potential meaning and a kind of subversive characteristic to it. And I thought, hmm, I bet you if I look even further and if I start to pay attention when I'm out on the street, I might be able to go around the cliche and sort of beat it to death with quirky qualities. And that's what happened. It was one of those recognitions that, that comes up unasked for but it hits you on the head in, in a way that makes you wake up and say, aha. Uh -huh. and, and then I, I thought I had just published Cape Light and then St. Louis in the Arch, two fairly serious, large format books. But I hadn't published the book of my 35 millimeter work, which I had been doing at that time, you know, since 1962. So it was almost 20 years. And I thought, is this a way that I could tie together a lot of my interests and concerns about life in general? Could I weave it together on the simple thread of flowers without being laughed at <laughs> or, or thought to be, you know, oh, well, this guy's, he's, you know, honing the cliche. And so I thought I'm taking a chance. And, you know, let, let the public or my, my buddies be damned. I, I think there's something here. And so it was a kind of courageous, as so it seemed to me at the time. Maybe I'm making more of it now than it was. But, but really, I, I did, you know, consult with myself and say, well, you know, after Cape Light in St. Louis, how is this going to fit? And it turned out to be a kind of classic now, which is why I've made this second edition. I love that phrase, that idea of, of beating the cliche to death with, with quirky qualities, because it's often the quirkiness that, that makes the book, that makes the edit. A couple of the quirky bits that jump out to me is 
never have I seen more people carrying more potted flowers, <laughs> which surely you noticed. I mean, surely, I mean, the, the, the book strongly suggests you got a kick out of people carrying these large pots of blooming flowers around Manhattan, too. <laughs> well, you know, they they literally dazzle their way into your consciousness when you're on a street, when everybody's in grays or, or business attire and suddenly a little explosion of color happens 10 feet away. You're so grateful for this message that's coming to you and, and, and short-circuiting everything else that's there because the flower, well, depending on where you put it in the frame, and that's part of the interesting game of seeing is how do you absorb this and make it work without jumping in, in front of it and putting it in the center. So it, it's a wonderful game. And being out on the streets is, is a game of seeing all by itself. So the flower is just another asset, let's say. If I had to pick a favorite quirky picture in the book, it's a, it's a picture from 1971, a photograph in New York of a, of a man in a suit walking down the street right at your camera. Behind him, there is a, a man, I think with blonde hair, maybe it's just the sunlight, kneeling and praying there's a diagonal line that runs through the middle of the picture from an American flag on the right up through an awning. And it is only when we get to the top of the awning, if you will, that we see a bouquet magically hovering in the air. And we realize it's linearly right above the man praying. <laughs> Can you imagine how shocked I was when I, when I saw first the guy on the ground kneeling there? And then this zombie-like man walking out of the sunlight and into the shadow to pass by me. And fortunately, I look everywhere when I photograph so that I can include in the frame things that don't belong there. My, my feeling is not to be central focused all the time, but to spread things out over the frame so that the viewer has to look all over to sort of make the content seize up and, and come together. And when I looked up and I caught that crazy hanging bouquet, you know, really 15 feet above street level, that it was notched into that picture, I thought, oh my God. And, and you know, it's a totally unexpected picture. I think the woman on the edge of the frame may have on a flower dress. I, I wondered about that. It's hard to tell because she's moving. She's a teeny bit blurred. I don't know if blurred is the word, but she's obviously in, in, in motion, which makes it hard to differentiate colors. There are a lot of flower. There are a lot of floral dresses and floral prints. I mean, really, there are a lot of flowers of any kind you can think of in the book. I should, I should note that within this new book, there are 23 more pictures, pictures made since 1983. Has the reason flowers and these pictures interested you changed, or is it the same as it was back when you were assembling the original thing? I would say it's, it's probably in the same spirit as it was then, although I've learned a lot of things since then, and occasionally I've tried to push a little bit with some pictures, or I've succumbed to other needs. But I, I always felt that that book was printed, the first book was printed too dark, 
Because back in those days, inks were dirty. They were really made from mud, you know? They were made from, from earth, earthy substances. And then in the 80s, Toyo Inks, Japanese producer of inks, started making cleaner inks. And, and printing became more luminous. And, and one could separate transparencies at, in a higher resolution and a better quality. So I, I felt that the separations that were made for that book of mine were muddier and darker than they should have been. And the book was small. And so I wanted a, a book that would be scaled up to really handle a 35 millimeter frame vertically or horizontally with some scale. And so I, I, I spoke with Damiani, my publisher, and they were in complete agreement. And we ag arrived at a size that actually we've used before for Mirandi and Cezanne still lifes that I made. Now, now you could see into the pictures all over. And I had the real pleasure of scanning every single image in the book and then working on the files myself in Photoshop so that I could really balance them to the slide and get the most out of them. And I, I really feel that you can see everything in the photograph. And for me, every detail, you know, really counts. Like even the way that guy is kneeling on the sidewalk and his reflection in in the window. These are subtle things, but they they're they're part of the music of every photograph. So that there's like a little bit of timpani, something in the background might go ding, and you hear that or you see it in a way that adds content to the frame, at least for me. On the dedication page of the book, among those you thank are Leica, Kodachrome, and Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> you mentioned painters and your interest in painting a moment ago. Given my own historical interests, naturally, I'm fascinated by discourses between photographers and painters. And this book is, and, and much of your work, is chock full of them. And I wanted to start addressing a couple of those with a picture you made uh, in Elba, Italy in 2012. A picture of looking out on, on, on the sea with uh, flower boxes, I think that's the right phrase, in the, in the foreground and some chairs and, and, and some gravel. We'll have it on, on manpodcast.com. To me, that's got to be an address of Monet's famous Garden of Santa address at, at the Met. And I wonder, I guess, A, if it is, and B, if you are conscious of addressing individual paintings that directly. No, I don't think I am. I don't think I see a place and click on the painting, but I know that painting very well. I love that painting so much. And in fact, when for the 30 years that I lived on Cape Cod in the summers, I had a house right on the water, a small old cottage, really. And I mean a cottage, it was actually a boathouse, so it wasn't very big. But my wife made a garden, Maggie made a garden there too, and that garden played like that Monet. I always felt when I entered the gate and I walked down the path that I was entering that Monet. 
painting and, and in front of me was the sea and sailboats on the horizon and and you know and flowers celebrating their color and and sunlight i think that if one has studied art history and i did and has grown up in the museums of new york and the world and seen painting my entire life it's part of the the fabric of one's visual sensitivity and and often without even knowing it i can uh, adjust my position in space or the way the frame looks or my intuitive response to a moment without clicking on which which painting it was or which artist it was but i already have drunk the the passions <laughs> the passionate uh, flavors of these paintings for so long and that i think without without knowing it one quotes these things and or, or is is stunned by it so yes when i walked down that path and saw all those chairs arrayed that way with the with the flowers at the edge of the sea the hit of it wasn't directed at monet but i i absorbed the tinkly beauty the the sonic quality of it as they as they tinkled across the edge of the frame and the, and the order of the chairs and their legs and the shadows i mean it peopled the frame the way the monet did in some way so i i won't say that i saw it that way but i think i knew deep 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 down and that that goes for a, a lot of my photographs I, I love how you put that. I mean, I think art historians have a very hard time explaining an artist's subconscious and how it works, let alone <laughs> let alone footnoting it. But I see that a lot in a lot of these pictures. There is an absolutely great and, and even kind of funny 1975 picture you made on Route 1 in California of a succulent with a curving arch-like flower. You know, it seems to be a mindful chuckle at the Claudian construction of a bending tree that frames a foreground scene in so much neoclassical and afterward painting. <laughs> and I think it probably must have worked that same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, you, you see a quotidian strip like that. It's just one more faceless continuity of a road with all the contemporary crap along along it and here is this splendid creature who has leaped up towards the sun it keeps on unfolding its floral display until finally the weight of it in in a beautiful swan-like way dips down towards the road as if it's going to touch that road and you know i i'm walking by or, and i see that and I don't recognize the quote, but I understand the dichotomy that this splendid creature is living in this, you know, ordinary and awful surround. And so I think as a photographer, I want to make the juxtaposition as seamless as possible. I want that road and that flower to be in focus as much as possible so that they're in the same plane 
even though the illusion is that the road is going far away, I think my, my painting sense is to flatten it as much as possible. Th th that's one of the, the games and problems with photography. We're dealing with a two-dimensional medium that is always thrusting a three-dimensional projection. The illusion of three dimensions is there. The way the telephone poles or the light poles get smaller in perspective, etc. And yet it's flat. It has no dimension. And so I think uh, any thinking photographer who loves the medium wants to challenge this and to create something that is two-dimensional through the understanding of the photographer's sensibility, but is, is contesting the three-dimensionality of it, plus the location. and I mean, everything is going on. But sure, the surprise is that this thing exists not in a botanical garden, but in someone's shrubbery hanging over the, the highway. Smog behind and around. Yeah. What you just said reminds me of a picture from St. Louis, from your, from your St. Louis pictures and book. A picture of almost two-point perspective, kind of a juncture of, of roads, one straight, one curving foreground in shadow. Um, it's a picture that nods at painting's history, but also kind of nods at, say, for example, what was a then-recent Dennis Hopper picture offering a car-bound two-point perspective view of, I think, Sunset Boulevard in, in Los Angeles. And I guess that brings me to, 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 to St. Louis a little more broadly. And I, we've been talking about how you put together the 1983 Wildflowers book and this new book. And I'd like to ask a question about how you make a body of work. So, so Wildflowers is a retrospective project that includes work from across your career. And I'd like to ask a question about how you make a, a specific body of work from a, a, a specific time that is that is of that project and not retrospective. And I want to do that through St. Louis. For, for me, looking at that project now and really for a number of years now as a former um, semi-St. Louisan, there are a lot of critiques of American expansionism and imperialism within the pictures. There's the arch, which pops up in picture after picture, um, an idea you will reprise in Empire State later on. Often the colors red, white, and blue are reflected in the arch. You riff on, on arches present in buildings such as parking garages and Bush Stadium in the baseball football stadium in the was in downtown St. Louis. This is all a long way, <laughs> too long a way, of asking if you start out a project like St. Louis with a guiding idea and metaphors that you want to carry through it, or if all of that emerges as you make and edit the work in the book. I learned so much from St. Louis after I did Cape Light, and really in the very first year that I was shooting Cape Light, that, that fall, I went to St. Louis with Colin Westerbeck, who lived in St. Louis and ultimately became my writing partner for Bystander, the History of Street Photography. And I, I had uh, a job 
to shoot in St. Louis. And so I said to Cody, why don't you come with me and we'll go and look at some historical societies and places like that in St. Louis and see if our thesis about street photography can be seen in these places. So it was, it was like a double whammy. And we got there and Cody called the mother of a friend of his who was a famous art historian and photography historian in St. Louis. And uh, she invited us over in the evening. And when she saw my little handful of, of Cape Light photographs, she said, I'm calling up Jim Wood, who was the head of the St. Louis Art Museum at that time, 1976. Anyway, she called him up. And that evening, we went over to his house. He looked at some of these Cape Light photographs. And in the middle of looking at them, he stopped and he looked at me and he said, could you do that here? Could you do this kind of work here? And Jim and I were only a few years difference in age. And I remember the two of us, and we were both young at that point. And I remember looking at him and, and saying, this afternoon when Cody and I were walking around downtown St. Louis, I had this sense that I could work here. And it, it, it came because St. Louis was being dismantled in its downtown area. They were knocking teeth out of its mouth on every block. You could literally stand at one end of St. Louis downtown and look right through the whole downtown area and see out the other side because so many buildings were missing. And I thought, this is fantastic. I'm seeing the reason that America is, is America's mid-sized cities are in decay because they've moved, people have moved to the suburbs, malls are springing up and the, the urban center is being torn apart for parking garages. And I thought there's something to say here about the decline of American city urban life and, and what's going to happen in the future. So it, it was like an instant lightning bolt of recognition that there was a subject there that woke me up just on a walk through the city. I kept on seeing eight by 10 images possible. And, and everywhere I turned, the arch was leaping up out of the tops of buildings, between parking lots, you know, and slivers seen down a, down a, a, a sunlit street. And, and so when Jim Wood said, could you come here and do this? And I said, I, I had this impulse today that this is, I'm ready for something like this. So he said, I'm going to make it happen. And he immediately, the next day, called a banker friend of his who took an art course at Princeton or something like that, an art history course. And the guy was so primed to do doing something artful about his city that he put up $10,000 or, or whatever. And then Jim got a grant for another 15,000. So for $25,000, I was able to do this project. I, I, I literally lost money doing it. But who cared? I was working on something that was so thrilling to me. So 
to answer your question specifically, a few urges and visual cues popped up for me. And so I became inspired and, and activated by the potential. And I knew that the scope of it was this arch impacted the life of the city because they tore down its cast iron district along the waterfront, basically to build the arch, which was the gateway, quote, to the West. And so I saw the confrontation between, you know, urban dissolution and decay and how buildings and whole quarters were being sacrificed for a new city. And yet it, the city was was being emptied out and moving to the suburb. So it, it seemed like it had an, an inbuilt dichotomy. And I thought maybe I could find out something. I could understand something about the American ideals at work here. And anyway, so I, I got that on a kind of um, muscle level, you know, without going too deep. And then as I came there and I was still learning the view camera, I had only spent two months using a view camera, so I was new to it. So, so let me just fill in for listeners. Eight by 10 cameras are huge. So not only is a photographer new to them getting used to using it, he's he or she is inevitably getting used to lugging <laughs> the thing around <laughs> with lots of equipment too. <laughs> that's, that's right. And it, it's not the kind of darting, intuitive, quick, responsive, flash of a of a 35 millimeter it's something that when it hits me i i'm stunned and i i stand there and i begin to take in the scope of the space around me that is sending a kind of energy visual energy towards where i stand so in fact you know i learned something in my on my I made four trips to St. Louis, so I could be there in each season, just about. And somewhere on my second trip, I had an epiphany. And this is something I rarely talk about this, but, but it's, it's one of those truths that it's almost embarrassing to say it because it sounds so, how, how do you believe this? I was walking down one of the streets in downtown, and I got to a point on the street half in shadow and half in sunlight. And I, it, it felt to me as if there was a hand on my chest and it wasn't letting me go further. And yet there was nothing that I could see that was telling me to stop. It was the everything that was there. It was the, the buildup of lights and shadows on both sides of the street, the scales and color of the building, a particular parking garage that had sort of spiral levels to it, the quality of the daylight and the blue of the sky. It was everything. It wasn't a one thing only. And I remember feeling, I can't, I can't go forward. I, I'm, in, I'm in the spot. And I set the camera up and I made a photograph from that spot. And as I looked at that image upside down, which is a thrill to work upside down because you dislocate yourself from the content and you have to trust that the, the gravity and the forces at play are true 
and will mean something when they're right side up. And I stood there and I thought, it's about everything in the frame. And I am the focal point of all of these energies. You might call them lines of sight or rays of light have focused at this place and this is the right place. And so I made a photograph on that impulse and instinct. And from that day forward, I trusted that that was a characteristic that I could count on. That it went, when that magical hand stopped me from going forward, that I had reached something that was beyond just idea. It was visceral and visual. And I entered the space. And now I was part of it. And that taught me a lot and it liberated it liberated something in me that I didn't know I would ever arrive at. There are two things about St. Louis and what you just said that I that I I want to pull out. You mentioned Jim Wood, who 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 was then the director of the St. Louis Art Museum. You were there in the late seventies in nineteen seventy-five. Jim Wood was particularly well positioned to have that idea and engage you in 1975 with Weston Neff. He co-curated the landmark exhibition era of exploration, the rise of landscape photography in the United States and America. And so he was already, he was in the middle of thinking about these relationships between photographs and place and nation. And then you mentioned the emptying out of, of the city and the demolition of buildings across the book you uh, offer interiors of the St. Louis Art Museum, galleries in the process of being installed, deinstalled, reinstalled, as a kind of link and metaphor to and for the city and the American urban experience. And I have a whole new understanding of those pictures after after hearing you talk about your engagement with with Jim Wood and with with the museum. I, I, I love that. Thank you. You mentioned St. Louis comes after Cape Light. One of the things I've thought over the years as I've gone th through those two books is like, gosh, the light of St. Louis couldn't be any more different than the light off of Cape Cod. And I think that comes shouting through the books. The light in Cape Light is so tangible, so material, so Sanford Giffordy, if you will. Yes, I've written a book about a photographer. I am not, you know, technically well-informed about photography, either in the 1860s or in the 1970s. So I hope this isn't a stupid question. But were you simply bringing mid-70s technology to a place, Cape Cod and its light? Or were you mindfully working to capture and print specific light in specific ways for specific reasons and addresses? In the immediacy of my discovery. I'm just going to step back a little bit to sort of set the stage for the, the, an answer. I had, you know, I started with color in 1962. I worked with it all the way through, even though I also shot black and white for 10 years from 1963 to about 73. And then in the early 70s, I realized that I needed to move on. 
that I wanted to give up the Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank sort of catch of the moment, and that I wanted a more overall descriptive quality, something I learned from John Sharkovsky, who always talked about description, saying, all a camera does is describe what's in front of it when you press the button. And if the camera was describing everything and color film described more things than black and white did, because it has color added to form, then I wanted to see if I could reinvent for myself a way of photographing in color that didn't depend upon the catch, some kind of moment. And so I began working at a, at a further remove from the plane that guys like me and Gary and Todd and Lee worked at, which was about eight or 10 feet out. I wanted to set myself back more like at 20 feet so that I can also photograph the buildings and the length of the street and the sky and the clouds. I wanted everything in the frame to be a field. And I wanted more description because I determined that I wanted to make large prints. At that time, everybody printed 11 by 14. Maybe you made a 16 inch or a 20 inch print sometimes for a show. But basically 11 by 14 was what street photographers printed. And I thought Kodachrome is so sharp, it could go up to 40 inches easily. But nobody was interested in big prints then. And so at some point, I, I realized I'm not getting from the 35 millimeter the, the scope that I want, because you have to make an internegative. This is a lot of chat right now, but I, let, me, let me get to how I got to the next step. So I thought, well, if, if I'm frustrated with, the, with having to make an internegative, which means I lose a lot of the Kodachrome qualities in order to blow it up, I should work with a negative that I could blow up that's clean. And I tried other size cameras, but they were insufficient. They were too slow. And I thought, you know what? I want to work with an 8x10. I actually tried to find an 11x14 camera. Uh, but Kodak wouldn't make the film for me unless I bought $20,000 worth of film in one shot. They would give me the entire run. And I thought, I can't, I don't have the money to buy $20,000 worth of film. So I, I found an 8x10. And I thought, I can't work in the city with this. I have to go away. So I went, my, a good friend of mine, a painter, said, go to Cape Cod. So in 1976, when I got the camera, I, I took my kids and family to Cape Cod and because Provincetown in Cape Cod has a very interesting street life. It's at the very tip of Cape Cod, which is a 60-mile out-in-the-ocean sandbar, basically. Uh, even though it hooks, it's still a sandbar all the way out, and the very tip is out there. And so I and I had I had really only been there once before for you know a day, so I didn't know it very well. But I went up and I rented a house and we got there and Provincetown had a sort of like a Greenwich Village characteristic to it. It was always an artist's mecca. It had theater there early on. Tennessee Williams wrote plays in in Provincetown, so it had culture. And yet it had sea on all on three sides, and it had sand dunes and woods, and it was idyllic. 
So there we were. And the first thing I noticed was the light out here has no pollution in it. We're 60 miles at sea. If you looked back toward the land across Cape Cod Bay, you could see a smudge of, of like tobacco-colored air on the horizon. But out on the Cape, it was scintillating. And I realized every droplet of water in the air didn't have a little piece of dirt in it as you do in the city. <laughs> so our air in a city is occluded because light is passing through moisture, but it has dirt in it, pollutants in it. Whereas out at sea, it was radiant. Everything was glowing. It almost was shadowless. And I recognized this the first time I looked through the camera. I thought, oh, wow, everything is glowing here. Even the shadows have ambient light in them and they feel illuminated. And so that became an understanding immediately. I sensed that I was in a vaporizing surrounding in which light played out as far as I could see. Now, to have that illuminating experience, pardon my pun, was, was life-changing. Everything I looked at was different from how things looked on the mainland. And jumping now to St. Louis, when I got to St. Louis, the air in St. Louis, I saw it immediately. The color of the buildings came from the bricks that were made locally and from the, the land of the Midwest, the clays and soils of the Midwest lent a color to the brick that was different from the brick in New York City. And I could see it, the dust on the streets and on buildings had tinted everything with this Midwest, you know, dust storm that coated everything for, for hundreds of years. And so I recognized the light difference immediately because I had learned in one summer on Cape Cod, I had learned about the luminescence of things and I could immediately tell the difference. Even my exposures were different. When I would read my meter, I would see, oh man, it's like a stop and a half different. A daylit scene is really different here than it was back there. So I, I was in the light. I understood the difference, you know, intellectually, visually, and, and spiritually. So I'm, I became a different person photographing in St. Louis. I, I, I took things in differently. And, you know, when you're learning a new vocabulary, and 8 by 10 is a new vocabulary, time is one of the big assets. Some of my pictures went on for minutes. Not... I mean, my, fast, my fastest exposure was about a tenth of a second. Everything else was longer. So I'm always working at a half a second or a whole second or three seconds, and, and sometimes with interiors, minutes. And it's a whole new environment to live in when I'm making a photograph because I'm standing alongside the camera waiting for the time to slowly build its light. I think sometimes about Edward Weston's pepper. 
I knew about that picture because the guy who wrote a book on on Weston became a friend of mine in New York. And, and he told me that Weston set that pepper in a tin funnel at the back of the studio, at the furthest end of the studio. And he told Cole and the boys to get out of the studio and not run around because it would shake the boards. And that this was going to be a very long exposure, maybe six hours, because it was a, a, a dark green pepper in a dark gray, almost black funnel at the far end of the studio. And the only light that got there was slip sliding from the front windows, slowly coming photon by photon through the darkness of the studio and slowly over time illuminating the pepper. And if you look carefully at that pepper, you can see that it has shriveled a little bit in the in the hours that it was there. It must have just shrunk a little bit because there's slight, the very slightest bit of movement at the edge of the pepper. And so I found myself at times waiting out, you know, a few minute exposure, standing next to the camera and thinking about Weston and thinking about here I am in the bowels of this no longer used railroad terminal in which there was a huge mural showing New York on one side in a female goddess-like form and Los Angeles on the other side. And in the middle was the queen, which was St. Louis. <laughs> and how the handmaidens to St. Louis were New York and Los Angeles. And, and there I am in this empty, deserted terminal with rats scurrying around and dust everywhere and thinking, ah, oh, you know, uh, the camera is my faithful servant recording time, photon, light and time, photon by photon as it builds up on the film. And that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm exposing the film to gather all of the light and it's going to transform this dark and dusty place into a, a wonderland, a visual wonderland because of time. So that's the kind of dream state that working with the 8x10 ultimately brought to me, that I could be a, a daydreamer on my feet, standing next to my six-foot-high recording device. Let's close by talking about a 2011 picture of flowers that's in the, in the new book. It's a picture you made in Tuscany, and it's a picture that shows a hand coming into the frame from the left-hand edge holding a handmade, hand-picked vernacular bouquet of, of purple flowers. In, in some ways, it feels, well, I think in a lot of ways, it feels like the most spontaneous picture in, in, in the book. I think I have a pretty good guess, but whose hand is it? It's Maggie. It's Maggie's hand. Your wife, Maggie Barrett. There are a lot of Maggie Barrett pictures in the book. Yes. I let go of a lot of the pictures of my first wife, who just passed away a few, few weeks back. But, but it, you know, we were no longer together. And um, I wanted to refresh the book. And I had to sacrifice a lot of those 
photographs, and I thought, you know, Maggie's a real gardener, and, you know, we've spent 30 wonderful, enlightening years together, and so there are pictures. But that picture was, just as you read it, it was a spontaneous, immediate thing. She, you know, we were walking on the road, at, probably at this moment in the year, and she had just picked wildflowers for the table. And she stopped for a second, and she was pointing to something with with the bouquet, and she was sort of waving it around and everything. And I, where I was standing, the alley of the street, even though there weren't trees on both sides, the alley of it and that arm thrusting into it was just like a click, click, click. You know, there were two or three pictures I made instantaneously as she was waving the picture, the flowers around. You know, and it was just it didn't have much in the way of thought. It was just a, a response to the kind of, I don't know, her, her gut reaction to bringing springtime home with us. So that was it. And it follows a picture at Jim Wood's funeral. The picture before it is on a boat and Jim Wood's brother, his wife and daughters and their husbands are standing there, and we're in the middle of Cape Cod Bay, just offshore from the town that Jim was born in. And his brother has just emptied his ashes into the sea, and now people were throwing flowers in. And I saw that flower flying. In the, in the upper left-hand corner of the picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and his brother is kissing a flower. And, and I thought, you know, how tender... How tender is this and spontaneous and the present moment and so much history with Jim, you know, 30 years with Jim. And now my friend is gone, someone I could really talk to. Joe Meyerwitz, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure, Tyler. Thank you for spending this time with me. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Free Fall 49 by Brendan Fernandez on July 23rd at 7 p.m. Central Time. Free Fall 49 is an ongoing series of live, dance-based performances and installations responding to the shooting at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida on June 12, 2016. The work poses the falling body as metaphor for queer politics and the dance floor as a space for resistance and experiencing agency. During the performance, dancers perform on raised platforms to a DJed soundtrack responding to the set performed at Pulse the night of the shooting. Over the course of the performance, the music stops and the dancers fall to the floor a total of 49 times, one for each fatal victim of the attack. In the performance, the music always starts again and the dancers stand up again to dance. In the work, dancing and standing back up serve as acts of resistance. Freefall 49 will take place in person and stream live at twitch.tv slash Center. Admission is free. For more information and to RSVP, visit bemiscenter.org slash events. This performance is part of the exhibition Altogether Amongst Many Reflections on Empathy, on view at Bemis Center through September 19th. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, A Version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, 
features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer in the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Elizabeth James Perry. Along with Ecua Holmes, James Perry has created a Garden for Boston outside the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's main Huntington Avenue-facing entrance. The installations respond to Cyrus Dallin's monumental bronze sculpture Appeal to the Great Spirit from 1909, which has stood at the entrance to the museum for over 100 years. James Perry is an Aquina Wampanoag artist whose work extends coastal Algonquian culture through craft and conceptual projects. Elizabeth James Perry, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston has installed Cyrus Dallin's 1909 fantasy bronze sculpture, Appeal to the Great Spirit, between the museum's Huntington Avenue entrance and the museum itself since 1912, which is to say it's been there. <laughs> it's been there for all of my life and it's been there for all of your life. So before the MFA approached you about what became this project, was the sculpture and its sighting something that I don't want to say was important to you, but was its physical presence and sighting something that you thought about and engaged with over the years? So growing up in Massachusetts, I was aware of the Dallin statue in my various visits to the museum over time. It was not a piece that was particularly engaging for me as a Northeastern native person. It simply didn't have aspects that would have drawn me or educated me or reflected in any way tribal identity here in New England. So it kind of stuck out as an odd piece to me and something that I really didn't relate to in particular. It seemed out of place and it was very prominent, but there was no real explanation as to how or why it was so prominent. And so it sort of was like many things in New England, another statue that caused me to kind of shake my head and walk by. So that was my my earliest impression, I think, was, was my reaction, that was sort of a non-reaction in a way to it. I think as a Northeastern Native person, if there were aspects to a figure that were strikingly Wampanoag or strikingly Nipmuc or Mohican or Narragansett or something like that from Southern New England, that I would have been a lot more drawn to the figure and would have spent some time really examining it and learning more about it. So more of a shrug rather than ire or or mindful engagement. Yes. Well, I'm a Northeastern person who deals with New England culture can be not very tolerant and not very welcoming to Native American people in general and to the tribes in New England in specificity. So I think that one picks and chooses one's battles over time. And, you know, sometimes there were more immediate and pressing concerns. It's troubling, I think, to have figures that misrepresent Native identity and culture and issues, however well-intentioned. I think that they miss the mark and they don't do the important work for us that art can do in terms of educating and sensitizing people and 
raising awareness of different cultures, different indigenous cultures in this region, and the beauty and the richness of the, the heritage here. There are many, many histories at work in Dallin's sculpture and in its subsequent installation. So, of course, there's the 400-year history of European-American dispossession and then the subsequent, often concurrent, in fact, art that helped invent and then extend the so-called vanishing Indian myth, as Dallin's work does. There's also the history, (laughs) which is amazing to me, of how there was never any conscious intent that Dallin's sculpture would be as permanent or long-term, depending on how we define permanence, in front of the MFA, but it's been there since it was first installed, which is for 109 110, 109, 109 years now, which which is wild. As you thought through your installation, Raven Reshapes Boston, a native corn garden at the MFA, were any of these histories interesting to you or specific histories that you wanted to address and engage with? The history of the people here is first and foremost in my thought at all times. And I've worked for my entire career. I've used art as well as writing and presenting in general to educate the public about Northeastern Native Americans and especially, I think, centering the role of women in Native society. I think that the story of the statue and its presence there in Boston is useful maybe as something to touch on if you were to, say, focus on native presence in Boston over the past 120 years and the role or the contributions of native people in Eastern Massachusetts or Massachusetts as a whole over the past 120 years. If you were to look at land dispossession in that period, I think that's a very interesting story. The Vanishing Indian story hasn't been important to me because we're still here. My tribe is Aquina still exists. Yeah, it's, I, I should have made clear it's an historiographic story. Yes. There are existing communities here in Massachusetts. There's Mashpee, there's Aquina, which is where I my family is from. But in our communities, we have ties throughout main, usually all of Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island and sometimes beyond as well, because Native folks tend to, to strike up conversations and relationships and they go visiting other tribes. So that's a real, real common thing. I have ancestral ties to the Boston area through one of my ancestors named Matak, who was a 17th century leader on Martha's Vineyard. And Matak said that his father and his father's brother came from the Boston area and married Aquino leadership women. And Matak was one of the sons. So there is a sense of that communication and connection with Boston. His Matak's brother, older brother, ends up leaving the island and marrying on the mainland in the Boston area in a community that later I think becomes a prey town or largely prey town in character. And so there's a sense of going back and forth and maintaining ties and communication and alliance building that sustained us here and continues to sustain us here for, for thousands and thousands of years. So there's this rich complexity juxtaposed against the odd, strange, rather racist, vanishing Indian story yeah, Dallin was was a full participant therein, and, 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 you know, it's always been kind of striking to me that Dallin in front of the MFA is a pastiche of stereotypes, and almost concurrently, he was dealing with American history in ways that were more 
considered. So, for example, Dallin also designed the half dollar that marked the Pilgrim Tercentenary, the 300th anniversary of the arrival of Europeans in North America. He was multiple. <laughs> and, of course, he was multiple, and his, his multipleness inevitably centered his, his whiteness. So let's talk about what you're doing. And I, I'm using the progressive tense because <laughs> as we tape this in mid-June, it's it's literally happening. It's growing. Let's talk about your installation at the MFA. How did you come to decide how you wanted to engage the site and the Dallin? You know, I wanted to center Native women and natives, Native women's role in being life givers and nurturers. I like to look at different aspects of our relationship with the natural world here in New England. And grasses are really important and in Native art as well as in Native sustenance. And so the the corn is a really rich plant. It's used in many different ways, not just for food, but also for beautiful hand-twined corn husk baskets and corn leaf baskets that are quite durable and attractive, and they can be dyed and patterned. And they're very, very useful in Native society, historically especially. Basketry isn't as common nowadays, of course, because there are a lot of competing demands on our time, I think, as creative people. There's also sometimes limitations to the amount of land that we have access to. So it's not necessarily as accessible to us as it would be some generations ago when tribal women were raising a lot of the the food for our families and wild harvesting additional to that. There's a few different reasons why I went with the design that I went with. As an, a coastal Native person with ancestry from the island, with ancestry from Boston, which is very coastal, I wanted to center our relationship with the ocean as well. And so I went with a design that I came up with that's sort of somewhat rounded, more flowy, horseshoe crab design in shape. And I also decided to, first I was going to have shallow eroding out of the side like our shell middens that you see throughout the Northeast and beyond, really, that are the remains of all of our traditional gatherings and coastal seafood feasts. And that it's actually sort of very much a part of the fabric of New England now, even among non-Native people, to go to the coast in the summertime and indulge in delicious clam bakes and just enjoy the beauty of, of the scenery and enjoy each other's company. And so I was going to have the shells erode out, but then I sort of lowered the, the profile of the mound. And so I ended up creating a border of crushed shell around the horseshoe crab that's still being installed, and it's going to be quahog shell. And what will be growing there are corn, beans, and sedges. Sedge is a grass. It looks, well, we'll have images on, on manpodcast.com, of course, but just for the sake of audio, sedges are kind of a soft, spiny, long leaf grass. How's that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a an excellent description. Okay. And sedges are also used in our in our weaving as well. Yeah. So why did you choose those those three plants? And and are the reasons similar or different? Tribal folks in this region were looking at how different wild plants tend to grow with each other in a certain system. And so there's this idea in native planting and horticulture of companion planting. And that includes the tradition of planting corn, beans, and squashes together. Those are very, very common companions. Pumpkins might be substituted for squashes 
Or, you know, you might have gourds if you're not going to eat the products. The gourds are good for, for storage containers, but they serve the same purpose. So the beans put nitrogen back in the soil for the corn, which corn is a very thirsty, hungry plant. And it has incredibly deep roots and it will drink a lot and it needs a lot of sustenance. So we fertilized with fish and we actually fertilized with horseshoe crabs back in the day when they were very, very common because horseshoe crabs were very nu numerous, but they're not so tasty. And so they were really useful, though, as a fertilizer in gardens. And so you have this habit of using either herring in the, the spring, you know, spawning cycle. They come up the rivers in huge numbers, and then you harvest those, set in your garden, have that release nutrients for the corn, plant the corn, plant the beans, and then the squashes spread out and keep moisture in the soil, and they keep some of the weeds down. I didn't elect to use squashes because I was focused more so on the grasses and different systems. I guess in here in New England, I noticed in our traditional wild cranberry bogs where we go harvesting still in Aquina on Cranberry Day, there are the, the natural bogs behind the sand dunes. They have freshwater input that keeps the cranberries really healthy. And then there are certain types of grasses that grow in there. So to keep the bogs productive and healthy, but to minimize impact, you kind of leave some of the grasses in there to help stabilize the earth and keep some moisture in the ground additionally, keep the balance right. But you can selectively harvest later in the season to use for your basketry and mat making and things like that. And blueberries might grow up in the same area and then you sort of manage where they grow so they don't you know, interfere with with the growth of the cranberry and all. So there's ways of maintaining the health of these systems without being very intrusive and only kind of managing them certain times of the year so you're not impacting or damaging the plants. So I just like that. I like those grasses specifically, and I know that they're really environmentally valuable. And so I sort of took the focus a little bit off of food when I went with sedges, and I went more in the direction of thinking about the environment, but also thinking about our traditional weaving and natural dye work, which I'm pretty involved with as well. Do you know or have a pretty good idea of how high the corn will grow around Dallin's sculpture? And is or was that important to you? Yeah, visually, I think it, it interested me, right, to have this very tall, very animated plant full of motion growing by the Dallin statue, which to me is very stagnant and stale and very stuck in a certain time period and mindset. I wanted it to be a nice, lively counterpoint to challenge that. So the corn will grow up to cover the pedestal and I think maybe reach the, the bottom of the horse's legs, if you can envision the, the statue itself. It won't completely hide it in this particular incarnation of the garden, I think partly because I didn't go with quite quite as high or terraced an effect as, as the one I first designed. I You know, I think it's it's good to kind of have them both visible and to to invite conversations and dialogue. I think, to raise awareness, to cause people to ask questions and think about things or see things in a new light, because there's this, the central theme, theme of the Dallin figure is, I think, somebody very influenced and maybe very, very much in admiration of Western Native people or maybe stereotypes about Western Native people on the horse in the, sorry to say it, plains headdress and somehow a squash blossom necklace. But then there's this very Eastern garden design, very organic and very alive and very continuously connected to the people who are living here today in communities throughout New England. And so I hope that it raises interest and sparks curiosity.
Last year, you did an interview with Aaron Jenia in which Jenia asked you what public space, such as the space in which the Dallin is installed, meant to you in the context of 400 years of settler colonialism. This is a pretty, you know, it was an interesting question, and your answer was interesting, and we'll have a link to that interview on manpodcast.com. I raised it because this is a pretty particular public space. It's in front of a major quasi-public institution on a major city thoroughfare, all of which surrounds a sculpture that is and has been problematic since pretty much it was put there and that still somehow remains. So given all that, how did you consider and approach the idea of public here? Who is the public in which you're most interested in seeing and engaging with and thinking about what you're doing, your work? So for me, there's two different sort of groups I guess I would say maybe, or two different publics. As a Native artist, always for me, first and foremost, has been that maintaining that communication and identification of Eastern people here as still existing, as not being extinct because we're east of the Mississippi or whatever, but continuous and connected and vibrant and growing. And so my first audience that I always consider is actually other Native people. So my tribal members in Aquina or Mashpee or tribal members throughout Massachusetts and Rhode Island or, you know, throughout this part of the country or throughout North, all of North America, because I have friends, you know, in many different parts of the country and I always keep them updated and we share each other's projects and progress and things like that. So there's this continued network of, you know, Native placemaking that goes on, maybe largely below the radar. But I think also in terms of my approach to the public in New England, I also think of the folks who haven't grown up in a tribal community like I have, don't know we exist or don't know much about us, or maybe only know about Wampanoags through reading some rather biased newspaper accounts, you know, or whatever happens to be on TV. It's very inadequate and not particularly rich and not satisfying and not necessarily very accurate. I think it's not known that we're still working terribly hard just to maintain our position here in the Northeast, to maintain our tribal lands, to continue our our identity and have a heritage to pass on to the next generation. I don't think that's understood and it's not respected. And so I always try to set the bar high and try to represent well and try to present things in a way that cause people to maybe question their assumptions and question stereotypes and think about it in a way that gives them time to self-reflect. So for me, thinking about Boston, so as a Native person, Boston is this very central place. Boston is and was this colonial center once colonization began here that sovereign nations in this region dealt with, interacted with, traded with. And so Boston had been a very central place for Native people in this area. It's a very rich place and quite beautiful. So it was important to tribes and it continued to be important after tribes were very much marginalized in in eastern Massachusetts because we're still we were still dealing with colonial authorities in that area. It's sort of the face of the government in a way. And then there's also beyond that, the federal government and our government to government relationship at that level. So they're parallel. But it's an area that has very carefully (laughs) 
been scrubbed, I think, of native presence, native identity, native arts and native culture and native language, except that Massachusetts is a native word, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's eerie for me to walk through Boston. It's very interesting. There's lovely institutions there, beautiful collections of art. There's a science museum, New England Aquarium. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot that it holds there, but it doesn't hold me. And there's never a time that I don't go there and ask why. You also make wampum jewelry in the Eastern Woodlands tradition. And some of the materials you use in that practice are and grow from the land. Materials such as hand-spun dyed milkweed, which is growing great guns right now where I live, too. You know, what you're doing for the MFA is enormously different than that practice. But did that practice inform your work with the MFA? It did. So there's there's different aspects to what I do and how it ties into the garden design. Part of my practice here as a wampum artist is to be able to access all the materials I need to make things in a fairly traditional manner. So I, you know, actually cultivate milkweed in order to have a good supply of it, a few different species, including butterfly weed. And, you know, you have your teachers, but then you have to do a lot of work beyond your indigenous teachers so that you get good at a particular practice. So it took me years of doing hand spinning. When I was exposed to commercial dyes, doing a lot of weaving for museum programs, I realized that those dyes are pretty caustic because I would be coughing at the end of the day sometimes. I loved the weaving, but I didn't like what I thought it was doing to my health. And so I stepped back and I thought, well, you know, we used to use all natural dyes. Maybe it's going to take a long time to revive those practices, and maybe I'll have to cultivate some of the things because they're no longer common here in New England, but it's worthwhile and safer. (laughs) And so I began to garden on my own property here where I was growing my fiber plants, growing some of my dye plants that are now rare elsewhere, and I wouldn't pick them in the wild because they're too rare and too precious, and sometimes it's against the law to do so anyway. And so to to also to to stay here in my homelands in Massachusetts, to continue to garden, to get the shellfish and continue to enjoy summer shellfish feasts and seafood in general, it feeds the soul. It cultivates much closer relationship to the natural materials that were the underpinning of our arts in the Northeast that were once thriving and that are somewhat less common nowadays because it's just, there isn't the access that there was and there's issues with pollution in certain areas and some places you can't shellfish because there's PCBs in the water and things like that. There are a lot of different concerns I have to deal with now as a modern person that my ancestors didn't necessarily necessarily have to reckon with on a regular basis. So there's a lot more planning that goes into what I do than, than what they did. There's a subtlety to natural dye palettes. The final product product looks different. The textures of a hand-spun yarn are different from machine-spun. To me, as a fairly sensitive person, as an artist, when I touch an object that is very handmade, it has a different sort of energy and vibe than something that has been, by and large, produced by machines inexpensively, sold inexpensively. It's a quick quick product for an impatient society, sold cheaply oftentimes, and it's very disposable and replaceable. It's very, it's it's more of a thing and a commodity, but not necessarily part of you as a creative person, I think, when when human hands haven't had much involvement with making of 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 a thing. 
wampum is really important to me in the ways that we have used it very much as a social medium, you know. So it's this material that has that strong purple and white contrast. So when you create the beads, they have the great substantial weight of the Kohog shell. So they have a real physical presence and size to them that's quite striking in appearance. But they they also allow you to create designs because of that contrast. And because they come from the ocean, which is so central to our identity here on the coast, it's considered really wholesome and therefore a wholesome material to record our beliefs, agreements, histories, present stories and beliefs and values. And it continues to have that wholesome quality as we continue to wear it as adornment and as it's sort of taken off here across the country, really. I think wampum is suddenly really fascinating to a lot of people. And there are lots of tribes that are now working with Kohog shell that, that you know, didn't because they like it. It's beautiful and it's very distinctive looking, but it has these qualities to it that are really hard to pin down. It's very drying. And I created a wampum belt using some of the dyes that I grow here, bloodroot, and also using a trade dye, which is logwood that's from the Caribbean area that yields a really beautiful blue purple that complements the wampum very nicely. So I have this combination of the, the blue purple and this harvest orange from the bloodroot as the, the warp fibers for a wampum belt that is basically a white ear of corn with purple shell corn husk leaves defined on it. The outdoor work at the MFA, if you will, is being installed with Aqua Holmes's work. Holmes has planted 3,000 sunflowers for Radiant Community, which is an extension of her Roxbury Sunflower Project, which uses sunflowers to extend beauty into Boston's historically black Roxbury neighborhood. How do you want what you've done to coexist with and engage with what Holmes has done? You know, I think that the pieces complement each other really well. There's different connections. So there's connections between the African-American and Native American community here in New England that go back for many, many, many generations. I'm actually a descendant of Jonathan Cuff, Paul Cuff's brother, who was a captain who actually, they were very humanitarian oriented and used their resources to build a ship to help escaped slaves and freed slaves to return to Africa if they chose, because it was very difficult to attain a sense of equality here in the colonies early on for people of color. So supporting people who were staying was something that Native American tribes in this area did. We were hospitable to Euro-Americans or Europeans, I guess I should say. We were hospitable to Europeans who came to the point where it was really taxing our systems, unfortunately, because it wasn't a reciprocal relationship. I think some of our relationships with the African-American community as it grew here were probably a little bit more sustainable and I think less damaged by a sense of hierarchy that Europeans who came here were, they seem to be promulgating this notion of class that didn't relate well with native notions of individual freedoms and equality and fairly democratic tribal governmental structures that we had here. And so I don't think that we necessarily bought into this notion that there was an upper class and an underclass and, you know, that colonization was great and slavery was was something one needed. Because, of course, when you think about it, nobody needs a slave. That That's just it. It's this very strange 
extraordinarily greedy, very inhumane way of relating to people that we didn't have as part of our structure. And we didn't buy into it. And, you know, very quickly we were drawn into slavery. People were taking Native children and babies. People were taking families and tearing them apart. And some some of our men and some of our women as well, but a lot of Wampanoag men were sold into slavery in the Caribbean, never to return. And so very quickly, tribal people here organized and networked to help buy people out of that system. And they also networked with African-Americans to help people to escape that kind of oppression as well. Finally, these plants that you've installed will grow as plants do. And then at the end of the season, they'll be done growing, right? So what will happen to the corn and the beans and the sedge at at the end of the, the, the growing season? And how did that ending, if you will, factor into your design of the project? You know, there's aspects of Native life and Native belief that are embodied in the corn. For us, corn symbolizes rebirth and regeneration and the whole cycle. And so in August, within our communities, we have a green corn celebration and have for thousands of years that you know, happens in in early to mid-August, and it coincides with the Perseid meteor showers, and there's different celestial events and and reasonings for that and values about that. But it has to do with celebrating life and the new generations, but it also has to do with thinking about those who have gone before us and their journey through the Milky Way to back to the Creator's house. And then at the end of the growing season in September, there's big harvests and there's an appreciation for the growing season that has occurred and all of the abundance. There's an appreciation because you never want to take the earth for granted and the resources and the foods for granted. And so there's a there's a very strong sense of community and community harvest, bringing people together, sustaining and nurturing and being healthy and sharing and and thinking about resource use in a way that's sustainable and respectful. And so it's a certain way, I think, of relating to natural cycles and staying connected to those and understanding that it's important to appreciate the earth and appreciate each other because we don't have everybody forever. And we don't have, you know, guarantees, I think, that the climate and the weather and the land shapes and all of that is going to continue forever because we've already seen so much change in our region. And so I think it's just a a way of marking Boston, again, as native space and connected to all of those cycles where I don't think that it has been for a long time. Elizabeth James Perry, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.